All right, well, if you would, you can take your Bibles out with me and join me over in Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. Uh, as you're headed there, let me just say, it is apparently about that time. Now, there will be times this week where you maybe don't feel like that, and you don't sense that, and your body's going to tell you it's not. But I just want you to know, it's about that time. We cannot deny what have happened the last three mornings. I don't know if you felt it, but fall is on the way. It's coming. It's coming soon. It's about that time. It's a great time. I'm really looking forward to it. They started playing college football this weekend, which means it's about that time. Uh, deer season's going to open in two weeks, which means it's about that time. The fish have moved back up shallow, which means it's about that time. Ladies, if you feel like you're being left out this morning, uh, I do not have firsthand information, but my sources tell me the pumpkin spice latte has made it back on to the Starbucks menu <laughs> this year. So, it's about that time. And I'm really excited about it. I, I love the fall. The fall is a great season. I get so many of my favorite things happen in the fall, so I'm really excited about it. But again, as we've already just conceded, fall is kind of finicky around here. So it's going to feel like it's about that time, and then there will be days when, when it won't. But this morning, as we head over to Matthew chapter 3, we're going to meet a new character in the Gospel of Matthew who comes bringing a very clear, very simple message, and he is super duper emphatic about the fact that it is. About that time. Would you read with me in Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 1? In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan, they were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and is thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord, uh, even as we've just read, uh, here comes your messenger to prepare the way for you, John the Baptist, with an urgent message. And so, Lord, as we consider his urgent message this morning, we pray that you would make it urgent to us. Uh, we pray, Lord, as we consider uh, the days that are at hand, Lord, that you uh, would be at work in redeeming them for us. For we know that they are evil. So, Lord, make us a people right now who are attentive to the work of your spirit and attentive to your word in this passage. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's go right back to verse 1, and let's think a little bit about this guy we've just met here in the first two verses. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
My first little phrase you see right there, in those days, what that does is connect us back to chapter 2, verse 23. So those days is talking about the days now that Jesus has returned from exile in Egypt. He's made it back to Nazareth. He's dwelling in Nazareth. That's your little connection that you get there. And if you're maybe sensitive to what's going on here and you got a little bit of timetable in your head, you would really quickly notice that we just spend about a 30-year gap. In between those, those two verses, at the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, what we're looking at right there roughly is about a 30-year gap. Uh, what you'll notice is the gospel writers don't pay a lot of attention to that 30-year gap. That's for a very particular reason. Luke will give you just a little, uh, little smattering of some, an event that happens in, in those years, in Jesus' teenage years. But the rest of the gospel writers are very, very concerned about Jesus' public ministry. So if you've come here this morning with lots of questions, or maybe you've got theories, or maybe you've got deeply held convictions about what's going on in that 30-year span, uh, I would hope you don't make too much of those. Because what I think is really the case is it seems to, that was a pretty normal 30 years. It seems to be a, a relatively, Jesus seems to have had a relatively normal life in that 30-year span of time. I don't think he went out and traveled the world. I don't think he teleported to the Western Hemisphere and shared the gospel with the Native Americans. Some people think things like that. I hope you don't think things like that because we have no biblical evidence for anything like that. It doesn't appear to be what's happened here. But I think what we can be content with is the gospel writers who wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit say, this is what you need to know to get Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they write what are called synoptic gospels. You'll heard them, hear them referred to that way sometimes. Because what they're trying to do is give you a synopsis, an overview of, of Jesus' life. Like, here's what you need to know about Jesus. And what Matthew says you need to know about Jesus is all the things, the connections we saw last week. He's out in Egypt. We've now declared war on the Hebrew infants. Jesus has been delivered from that. Jesus is coming back. Like, Jesus is now going to be called a Nazarene. Like, he wants you to make all those connections. See all that right there in his early life. And then the next thing he needs you to know about Jesus is about 30 years later. And he can't tell this story without talking about John the Baptist. So who is John the Baptist. Well, let's start to see here. John the Baptist, he comes, and he comes preaching. He came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. John the Baptist is a preacher. That's his primary identity. He's come, and he's proclaiming a message. He's got a very, very specific message. We also see that he's in a very, very specific place. This will be important in a minute. He's out in the wilderness of Judea. So he's out in the woods, and he's proclaiming this message. He's proclaiming a message that's important for us. Hey, repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, John the Baptist is proclaiming a, an important message, and he's proclaiming a message not only that's important, but it's very consistent across the gospel of Matthew. Our evangelist Matthew is going to go to great pains to help you understand that this is John the Baptist's message. This is a summary of Jesus' message. This is what Jesus is going to command the disciples to go out and preach. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So if this is an important message and a central message and a message that's going to come up over and over again, let's just make sure that we understand it a little bit. So the first thing he says is repent. Repent's a really important word. It's a key word. It's a word that spans both Testaments. It's all over the Bible in terms of how God's people have to respond to God. Like If we're going to respond rightly to God, we're going to have to use the word repentance. And so as we talk about responding to God, we're going to use that word repentance. And so let's make sure we're clear on it. You'll hear repentance defined sometimes. Some people will describe it as, as turning away. 
To, to, to turn away from something, to, to a do an about face. And that's good. That's helpful. We can keep that in our minds. That's not wrong. Turn away. That's part of it. Uh, have a change of mind. To change your mind about something. That's good. That's definitely part of it. We want to keep that in our minds. But what I want to make sure that we understand as we think about repentance is it's not, it's not just turning away, not just changing our minds, but maybe more generally we can describe it. It's an internal reality that has external consequences. It's something that happens to us by the will of the Lord supernaturally that we actually desire something different now. Something very internal that then manifests itself externally. We'll have plenty of time to talk about the external signs in the rest of our time together this morning. But if you have a tin of ears when you hear that and you say, okay, something, an internal reality that then manifests itself externally. If you hear me say that and you're a believer, you might have like an alarm bell going off in your head that says, huh, that sounds a lot like faith. Sounds a lot like faith to me. And that's really good. It should sound a lot like faith to you because repentance and faith are always used in connection. They're they're two sides of the same coin, really. Repentance and faith always inextricably wed together. Uh, I'll tell you how I was told in college. Maybe it'll be helpful for you. You can track with me here for a second. I'll do my best. Just put yourself in my shoes. I'm in college. I'm a guy. I'm a football player. I want to eat. Okay, and so this was the illustration that was handed to me that helped this click in my mind. So this guy told me, he said, Thomas, here's how I want you to think about repentance. Here's how you think about repentance and faith. Let's imagine we're in the cafeteria. Now, just pause. Our cafeteria was awful. Cafeteria food was terrible. Maybe that's why, that's why this analogy works so well. Okay, maybe you've been in the hospital recently. You've had hospital food. You've been in their cafeteria. There you go. You're, called, you're up to speed. So this is going to work. You're in the cafeteria, and you're carrying a tray loaded down. With nothing but cafeteria food. You're not real happy. So it's awful. But you're carrying your cafeteria food back to your table. And as you come carrying your cafeteria food back to your table, sit down and eat. Here I come with a tray. And on the tray, I have a bunch of food from Ruth Chris. So imagine I got a steak, whatever cut of meat you like. It's a ribeye, right? That's what it should be. So you got me, and you got a load of baked potato, and then you got one of those little personal turtle cheesecakes. And I come, and I'm carrying my tray, and I say, look, I got this food. I've already had food. I'm not going to be able to eat it. I would like to give you this food. Will you take this food from me? You can have It's yours if you want it. But you're in a huge dilemma, aren't you? Because you've got a tray of cafeteria food. You got a, you can't, you're loaded down with this tray of teetotally garbage cafeteria food. And I've now offered you this tray of, of Ruth, Ruth Chris food. And so you've got a decision to make. And I'm just going to assume for a moment that we're all rational people who would make the right decision. You want the Ruth Chris food. So what you're going to have to do to get the food you want that you now are aware of as an option for you, you're going to have to turn and sit down your cafeteria food. And you're going to have to take hold of that Ruth Chris food and take it to your table. So the act of repentance is what happens. It's the internal part of you carrying that cafeteria food. And it's the internal reality that you say, I don't want this anymore. That's the internal part. Your desires have changed. What I used to want five minutes ago when I was making my plate of cafeteria food, I don't want that anymore. So that internal reality has happened to you, and that internal reality now manifests itself because you turn and set the tray down. So it's an internal reality that corresponds with a real, true action. I've done this because I've had a change of heart. I've changed my mind. I've internally turned away, and that's had external consequences. That's kind of like repentance. Faith would be the part of you that is exactly the inverse. You now see the tray of Ruth Chris food, and you say, I do want that. 
That's what I want. So now that you've done the I don't want and you put it down, you've done the I do want and you take it. So faith is the same thing. It's the internal change, the internal shift in desires that you say, that's better than what I'm working with right now. And I would rather have that than what I want right now. And so I actually desire it, internal reality, and I'm actually going to lay hold of it. I'm actually going to put my hands to it. I'm going to grab hold of this, the external manifestation of the internal thing that's happened to you exactly how we respond to the gospel, right? That both of those things have to happen in our hearts if we will be a saved people. We're going to have to repent. That means the Lord is going to have to do a work in us that whatever our little pet sin is that we cling to and hold to so tightly and so dearly, insert, fill in the blank, whatever that is for you, you're going to have to say, I don't want that as much as I want Jesus. And so you're going to have to turn and set it down by the power of the Holy Spirit. You're going to be at war with it for the rest of your life. That's what Romans 8 tells us. You're going to put it to death by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you're going to turn and take hold of Jesus. That's faith. Repentance and faith. Two sides of the same coin. I don't want that as much as I want Jesus. I'd much rather have Jesus than I'd rather have that. That's how we respond to the gospel in repentance and faith. So there you go. John the Baptist is commanded. Repent. Repent, turn. You need, you need to encounter God and have this internal change that leads to these external actions. Something's got to happen to you. Why? Why repent? Why this clear, crystal clear command to repent for or because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven. That means, what we're talking about when we talk about the kingdom of heaven is the present rule and reign of the true king has now broken out. It's at hand. It's in our midst. It's all over you. It's like white on rice. It's right here, right now. This is urgent. This is a big deal. And you say, how do we know that? Why does John the Baptist say this right now? Because God has taken up flesh and is dwelling among us, and he's about to walk out into the woods next week. Very, very urgent. Very, very time sensitive. This is what it means that the kingdom of heaven's at hand. This is how Jesus has got the authority to say things like, I know for a fact the kingdom of heaven is at hand right now because I'm here. This is connected to the coming of Jesus. So repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist, he's a preacher. John the Baptist, he preaches this message. Really, really simple. You can remember it. You probably got it locked in your mind right now. Would you like to know a little bit more about who he is? Good, because Matthew's going to tell you. Verse 3. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. Who is John the Baptist? Well, this is really, really helpful for us. Let's imagine we rolled up to this document again like we imagined last week. It's 65 AD. We're people who are steeped in the Jewish scriptures. And so here we come and we see this right here and we know beyond a shadow of doubt, he just quoted Isaiah. He just quoted from the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 3, where in that original context, we're talking about the coming of God. And this has now been attributed to John the Baptist. Like John the Baptist is the voice we're talking about. John the Baptist is the one who's out in the wilderness who's crying. John the Baptist is the one who's been sent to prepare the way. It's really, really helpful. It tells you two things. It tells you something about Jesus. So in the original passage, if it was about the coming of God and it's now been applied to the coming of Jesus, who do you think Jesus is? Okay, so that's helpful. But then it tells us something about John the Baptist too. Like this is the one who fulfills the role. It was that the prophets wrote and they wrote and spoke often better than they knew by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in them to tell us what's coming. And now Matthew says, yep, and it was John. 
the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. You are going to get the people of God ready to receive their king. And here comes John the Baptist to do just that. He is this voice, this voice that's been prophesied. And he's come. Wouldn't you like to know what he was wearing? Verse 4. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. And you read that. And we read that as the New Testament people that we are, and we might miss some of what's going on here. But if you, again, 65 AD, you're steeped in the Old Testament scriptures, you're a good Jewish person who's got a good handle on your Old Testament, you read that and you say, sounds like Elijah. Sounds like Elijah to me. I don't know what you know about Elijah. You probably know more about Elijah than you think you know about Elijah. Because when you think about a prophet, I mean, I asked you, let's just imagine I asked you to describe a prophet. You would start giving me a lot of stereotypes that you borrowed from somebody like Elijah. But what's really helpful for us, the connection here, why we're talking about what John the Baptist wore, like why we care what he was wearing, is because of Elijah. And Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 1. So Elijah's a prophet of the Lord during this period that we call the kings. Consequently, his ministry is recorded in the book of the kings. And so in 2 Kings chapter 1, this really interesting story takes place. So uh, hard times have fallen on Israel. Uh, shocking to you if you've been tracking with us through the Old Testament recently. But they're having a hard time. And uh, they're not a very godly people. And so they decide, here's what we're going to do. We're going to send some messengers down to the gods of the Philistines. And we're going to see what they think we ought to do about this thing. We'll send our people to talk to the gods of the Philistines. And you'll never believe who took offense at that. Yeah, God. So God said, no, here's what we're going to do. Elijah, I want you to go out. These people have sent some messengers to go to the Philistines to talk to their gods. And I want you to go out and meet their messengers. You go confront them and you tell the king that because of what he's done, I just want him to know he's toast. Like he's never getting out of bed again. Like this is done. So, Elijah, you go tell them that. So, here come the messengers. They're headed off to Philistia to go see, check on what these pagan gods got to say to them. And Elijah confronts them and says, hey, uh, Lord wants you to know, is it because you don't think there's a God in Israel that you're going down to the Philistines? Uh, so, just go back and tell the king he's done. That's what I say. He, the Lord says, and I'm telling you, king's done. Go tell him. So, here go the messengers back to tell the king. And they walk in. The king's like, what are y'all doing here? I thought I sent you to go to Philistia, it hadn't been time, it hadn't been long enough for you to get down there yet. Uh, what's the deal? And they said, oh, uh, we ran this guy along the way, and uh, he told us to come back and tell you you're going to die because of what you've done. And the king says, what was he wearing? And he said, uh, a, a cloak of hair and a leather belt. And the king said, that's Elijah the Tishbite. I know him. I've run into him before. Very distinctive. They know him by what he wears. When you hear there's a guy out in the woods and he's got a, a cloak of hair on and he's wearing a leather belt, guess what? You know that's Elijah. And so as we see this right here recorded for us in Matthew chapter 3, verse 4, when we're concerned about what John the Baptist is wearing, like you just need to know that's there and John's wearing that to help you make this connection. Elijah part 2 is on the scene. Which is a big deal. The one who's coming in the spirit and power of Elijah to prepare the way. Hey, he's here. And like you really need to know that because the Old Testament has made it plain and clear. Elijah's coming. The prophet Elijah is 
coming. He's coming to prepare the way. This is how your Old Testament ends. I'm in Malachi right now, like two pages back from where I'm at in Matthew. And in the book of Malachi, chapter 4, this is the last two verses of the Old Testament, the way it's recorded in our Bibles. Chapter 4, verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of their fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So the Lord says, hey, before the Lord comes, guess who's coming? The prophet Elijah. Elijah part two is coming, and Matthew says he's here. This is the one. This is the voice crying out in the wilderness who's come to prepare the way, who's come to make the path straight. This is him. He's out in the woods. He's in the wilderness of Judea, and he's wearing camel's hair and a leather belt. Like, you might want to take notice of that. He's come. Exactly what the Lord's prophesied in the Old Testament has come to pass. You saw it last week. You're seeing it this week. This is the plan. Things are on track. It's going according to plan. And John the Baptist is out in the woods telling people to repent because the king of the heavens at hand, he's wearing a strange garb and he's eating some strange food. Focus them wild honey. Why is he doing that? Because that's what you got to eat out in the desert. No super prophetic connection there. Like that's what is at hand. It will matter. Jesus will mention it later. Take a mental note, but he's not fulfilling any prophecy. That's just what you got to eat when you're out in the desert. You live in a strange place and you wear strange clothes, you might also eat strange food. John the Baptist does. We have John the Baptist. Here he is out in the woods wearing strange clothes, eating strange food. And then look at what happens. He's still, John the Baptist still draws this huge crowd. Verse 5. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. These people really have come from all over. And you say, how all over? Well, let's just consider how all over. John the Baptist is out in the Judean wilderness. We think he's probably in the northern region, the best evangelical scholars we got think he's in the northern region of the Judean wilderness where the Jordan River runs into the Dead Sea. So you say, well, what's the deal there? Well, that's Jerusalem. It's the first city cited for you there in verse 5. Jerusalem is exactly one entire day's journey to where John the Baptist was at. So if you want to go see John the Baptist, what you got to do is walk an entire day to go see John the Baptist. You got to walk back an entire day to come home. And then you got however long you spend with John the Baptist. So that's, that's quite a commitment. Like for these city slickers in Jerusalem to go walk around out in the woods in the desert to see John the Baptist for a couple of days. Like that's a big commitment. The Spirit of God is on John the Baptist. He's proclaiming the Word of God, and people are coming from literally all over. Honey, it's Labor Day weekend. I know we usually go to the beach. I know we usually take a trip to the mountains, but what do you say? We pack the kids up, and we strap on our walking sandals, and we go out to the middle of nowhere where there's absolutely nothing to see John the Baptist. Doesn't that sound like a great use of our vacation time? And the people are going. They're coming. They're coming from all over. Jerusalem and all Judea, they're coming out to see John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is preaching this very simple message. Hey, uh, you might want to repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's about that time. And so when they hear John the Baptist preaching and proclaiming this message, as they go out to him, verse 6, it says they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Uh, We're going to have an abundance of time to talk about baptism next week. We actually will have a baptism next week, so I'd encourage you to be here for that. And then we're going to think about Jesus' baptism next week, so be here for that. So lots of time on baptism next week. Here's what we need to say about baptism this week. John the Baptist is baptizing these people with a baptism of repentance. 
So people are coming, and they're being baptized by John the Baptist as they confess their sins. Very close connection there between this baptism and this confession of sin. And it's happening out here in the River Jordan. Now, uh, this isn't totally unprecedented, but John's doing something very different and very unique. So in Jewish history, we're aware of some ritual washings, stuff like that. But nobody's ever done what John's doing. People didn't baptize people. Like, baptism in, this, in their frame of thinking was like a ritual, self-administered thing. Like, I'm going to take a vow, or I'm going to make a commitment, or I'm going to, this is me entering into this, this season where I'm going to purify myself. And John the Baptist says, like, no, I'm going to baptize you. Like, you're going to come, and as you repent, like, I am going to baptize you. And this is saying, like, if you, if you want to enter into this baptism, what you're saying is, I'm repentant from the heart. Like, I want to be done with my sin. This is a clear commitment to say, like, I'm turning from my sin. I don't want it, that internal reality of repentance, like, I'm done with my sin. That's happened to me. And the external sign is I'm going to make this commitment. John, you baptize me. You wash me of my sin. This is a, a commitment. It's a sign. It's a baptism of repentance. It's not exactly what me and you think when we think of baptism. It's not what we're going to see happen next week. It's not what we're going to see commanded at the end of this gospel. It's a very unique thing. But what you need to note is it's being done in connection with people repenting, confessing their sin. Like, I'm done with my sin. I don't want it. I want to be free from my sin. So John the Baptist, who's come to make the way clear for Jesus, is going out and he's doing this to prepare his people to receive their king. It's a big deal. It's not something that's entered into lightly. It's something that's only done for truly repentant people, people who hate their sin and want to be done with it. And that's true even of John's baptism, which is why John gets a little fired up when certain people come on the scene. Verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. A few things we need to see here. I'm totally aware that this is an information-heavy sermon because this is an information-heavy text. Uh, Matthew's setting things, a lot of things in place that you're going to need to track through the rest of the Gospel of Matthew. So uh, I hope you'll find the value in that this morning. But there's a few things we need to deal with here. And first, one of them is going to be really important. Who in the world are the Pharisees? The Pharisees, at this point in time, are a group of people who kind of represent this movement that's happening in uh, the Jewish sphere. Uh, they're a very, very conservative people, like a super conservative people. And they have the best of intentions in a lot of ways. They really want to protect the law. Like, we want to keep the law of God. We really, really care about the law of God. And so what that leads them then to do is to set up a system around the law of God to protect people from breaking the law of God. So let's just imagine that we have a command not to eat uh, shellfish. Okay, great. So maybe the Pharisees would look at that and say, no seafood. So that way, even if you manage to break the seafood thing, maybe you won't do the shellfish thing. It's like a preventative fence. That's the intention. I'll give you an example. Uh, this happens to me quite a bit. This happened to me uh, this week, probably twice this weekend. Let's just imagine that you're involved in something that's really important to somebody and they want you there at a particular time. Like, we really, really, really need people here at 5 p.m. Let's imagine, like, you're getting married or something. Or, like, you're having a rehearsal dinner or something like that. And you got to be, like, we got to have people ready to go at 5 o'clock. So you tell people, like me, um, be there at 4.30. 
Be ready to go at 4.30. And the intention is, like, I'm going to give you a standard. And in giving you the standard, even if you fail to meet the standard that we've created, you at least should meet the one that's actually the real thing. That's the intention. The challenge is, right, there are some people out there, like me, who are immune to that. Because over time, you build up immunity, you realize kind of, huh, that seems fishy, and you see through the smoke screen, you know what people are trying to do to you, you're a busy guy with lots of stuff to do, so you approximate the actual time in your head, and then you still manage to be five minutes late for that. That's how that works sometimes. But the Pharisees' intention in this is good. Like, we want to guard the law. The challenge is, when you make your convictions the law, you end up caring way more about your convictions than the law. So in theory, they care lots and lots and lots about the law, but the problem is now they've made their interpretation of the law the new law, which means they've actually missed the real law. They're only concerned about their thoughts, their opinions, their traditions, their customs. They're so wrapped up in their interpretation of what we ought to do and how to protect this thing that they've missed the real thing. They've got a problem. They've missed it. Because they're so concerned about themselves, because they're so concerned about trying to earn righteousness by what they can do, their ability to keep the law, their ability not to do certain things, their ability to do other things, because they're so concerned about that, uh, John the Baptist ends up really concerned about them. Jesus ends up really concerned with them. You will see them lots and lots in this gospel. Takes us to our second group of people, the Sadducees. Uh, The Sadducees are a unique group of people. Um, Maybe the best way to remember them is this like corny little saying that you know how much I hate, but I'm going to give it to you because it's helpful. The Sadducees denied the resurrection, which is why they were sad. You see. Yeah, it hurt me to say it too, but it's helpful, right? Okay, so the Sadducees, what they do is they, they don't believe in life after death. Like they do not believe the doctrine that our spirit continues to live after our body dies, nor do they believe in what we call the general resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15. They don't believe that there's coming a day when we're physically going to be raised from the dead. They didn't believe that. You'll watch that come out in some of the questions that they try to ask Jesus to trap him. They, furthermore, things you need to know about them, they, they kind of pick and choose the parts of the Bible they're interested in. They really are only interested in the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's kind of what they're hanging their hat on, and then they play fast and loose with everything else. The interesting thing by this point in time is they've really come to power. Like, they're a smaller group than the Pharisees, but they hold some of the most important, most uh, esteemed positions. These will be some of our leaders that we interact with through this book. They are from the, the party of the Sadducees. They really were, maybe this will help you think through it, they were their day's version of theological liberals. So we will kind of play fast and loose with what the word of God says. And if we can kind of bend and flex a little bit on our beliefs to earn favor with the world around us, we'll be willing to do that. They were super guilty for doing that with the Romans, something that had historically been very, very unpopular with the Jewish people. So maybe you can discern they've got their own problem too. The Pharisees have missed it by being so conservative that they've become so caught up in guarding their traditions and their customs and the the way they're looking at this thing that they actually missed the point. And meanwhile, the Sadducees have actually just said, yeah, we're kind of interested in our status and who we are and our power, and we'll kind of fudge on what we've got to fudge on to keep it. That's the Sadducees. So then here comes John the Baptist, and here's his rebuke to them. Uh, um, You brood of vipers. You brood of vipers. It's a strange thing to call somebody. Nobody's ever called me that. Strange thing to say. But what he's saying, let's think about vipers. We do have some snake experts in the room, or at least some snake evasion experts in the room. And some of the things that you know about snakes are 
pretty sneaky, pretty crafty creatures. I got to be on the lookout for them. They're pretty sneaky, pretty crafty creatures. They move pretty subtly. Interesting thing about a viper, though, that ain't a black snake, not even a copperhead. Now, it'll kill you. Very, very subtle, very, very lethal. So this is now how John the Baptist tags our Pharisees and Sadducees who've come out in the woods to meet him. You brood of vipers, you sneaky, lethal people, you subtle, lethal people. Subtle. Why do you say, what's subtle about this? Well, notice that the fact that the wrath of God's coming for them is not because they're not a religious people. They're a super religious people. They've hung their entire lives on religion, on organized religion. The Pharisees have this whole system going on. They've sunk their lives in this. They understand the Old Testament as good as anybody's ever understood the Old Testament. You've got the Sadducees, these people who've risen to power on the coattails of this kind of, we hold these religious offices. We do these religious things. We don't have a problem with God. We think God's great. We've got all of our, we've got all this power we've got from God. We just don't really care what he says. And that's subtle in the sense that it's not what you see from the world. You go home, watch the news for 20 minutes, you're going to agree the world's evil. The world's a place, they do evil things, they do really messed up things. You open your Bible, you read something like 1 Corinthians 6, and you say, oh, these adulterers, these sexually immoral people, these homosexuals, these drunkards, these people who are thieves, these people who've committed their lives of greed. Like, yeah, the kingdom of God's not inherited by those people, people whose lives are characterized by those things. Like, yeah, obviously. Obvi- yeah, we got it, we got it. That's out and out and out, obviously terrible. The wrath of God's coming for all that stuff. God's going to make all that stuff right. But John the Baptist says, who wanted y'all to flee from the wrath of God? Yeah, you're religious people and you're pointing at your Bible while you're doing the things that you do. Uh, You're wrong, but you're subtly wrong. But your subtle wrong is still very damning. You're lethal. You're leading God's people astray. Because you Pharisees have prioritized your own traditions and your own customs above the law of God, you've really become your own gods, and that's going to be a very lethal thing for you, like the wrath of God's coming for you. And you Sadducees, great. You hold all these high positions, and you've got all this power, and that, phenomenal. That's great, that's great, that's great, that's great. That's not going to keep you from the wrath of God, because you've actually distorted God's word, and you actually don't believe true doctrine. You actually don't believe the right thing, and actually don't teach people the right thing. So you subtle sinners are actually super duper lethal, and because of that, the wrath of God is coming for you. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? John the Baptist turns and says, He commands them the same thing he commands all other people. Like, what we need to see here, what would be the solution for these sinners, these subtle, lethal sinners, is repentance. Verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So what we need here is this internal reality we're talking about, a desire to turn from that, a desire to turn, if you're a Pharisee, I want to turn from my self-centered religion that I've managed to make about me and managed to make about this checklist of things I can do and things that I'm not going to do and things that make me better than other people. Like, no, Pharisees, you need to turn from that. You need to put that down. You need to see in yourself that you cannot be saved by the wrath of God on account of what you do. Like, that's not going to save you. Lay that down. Repent, Pharisees. You need that internal reality to happen to you, and then we're going to expect that to show up in tangible, external ways. You Sadducees, maybe they're the same way. Sadducees, you've got this whole thing built on on your own power and your own esteem, and what you desperately need is to know that can't save you. God does not care what your rank or status or ethnicity is. Like, you need to lay that down. You need to turn from that internally, and then you're going to expect that to show up in external ways. Bear fruit in keeping with 
repentance. That's his charge to them. And he anticipates in verse 9 the same uh, objection that we're going to see leveled at Jesus over and over and over again. Verse 9, hey, Sadducees, Pharisees, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Like, if you think, Pharisees, Sadducees, that who you are in your rank, in your interaction with the Bible, and the fact you've descended from Abraham, like, if you think that's such a big deal, just try verse 9 on for size. God does not care who your daddy is. You're not getting to heaven on rank. You're not getting to heaven on status. You will not make it into the kingdom of God by pointing at your ethnicity. Like, that's not going to do it. And to prove that that's how emphatic this deal is, the, we actually see really clearly, John the Baptist says, I'll tell you what, the Lord could raise up children of Abraham from these rocks if he wanted to. So if you're going to point at these things you're able to bring to the table, look at my lineage. Look at how great I am. Look at how faithful my forefathers have been. He says, I can't help you. This is actually about the power of God at work in you. We need God to change something about us so that we can be right with him. We need that repentance and faith to happen to us. And that is actually what puts us in the kingdom of God. And we should see it coming all along. Galatians chapter 3. A little bit of clarification on this sons of Abraham deal. I think I read these verses to you just a few weeks ago. But the apostle Paul writes, he says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Not about who daddy is. It's those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith will preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Not about where you descend from. Not about what office you hold. Not about anything you bring to the table. It's about whether or not you have faith in the Lord Jesus. It's about whether or not your life is characterized by I hate my sin and want to put it to death and I want Jesus because Jesus is better than my sin. And that's what has to happen for anybody to be saved. Even for these Pharisees and Sadducees who think they're so great and so special and so far above everyone else. So the question then becomes, for you and for our Pharisees and for our Sadducees and for our modern day Pharisees and modern day Sadducees, has that happened to you? Has God done a work in your heart to make you hate your sin and love Jesus? Because if you don't hate your sin and prefer Jesus over your sin, you can't be saved. If you prefer your sin over Jesus, you're an idolater. You can never be saved loving your sin more than you love Jesus. Do you have the right affections in your heart? Which is really just me asking, have you been born again? Do you have the gift of the Holy Spirit? Are you a repentant, believing person who's trusting what, who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, not who you are and what you're able to bring to the table? That then is the question. That's the question we've got to get answered. And John the Baptist says, you ought to get answered right now. Verse 10, even now, like right now, the ax is laid to the root of the trees Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and it's thrown into the fire. Like right now. So has the Lord done this work in our lives or has he not? Are we a people who have new desires given to us by the Holy Spirit? We've looked at our sin and said, we don't want that. We've looked at Jesus and say, we love him and we want him a whole, whole lot more. Because 
This thing is going to come down to whether that's happened to us or not. Not about who our dad is. Not about what we're able to bring to the table. Not about how well we can keep the law. Not even about how much you can manage to be at church. Not even about how much you can manage to read your Bible. That's not ultimately it. It's ultimately has the desires changed. Do you want Jesus more than you want your sin? Do you love Jesus more than you want anything else in your life? Do you want to lay your life down and live for his glory and see his will done in the lives of your family and in the lives of this church? And does the fruit in your life bear witness to that? That then is the question. And John the Baptist says it's the question that we need to get answered right now because he's saying it's about that time. And it's about that time for a very specific reason, because he's here. He's coming. The king is on the scene. Verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And you might just want to read that, and you say, what's going on here? Because John the Baptist, who is, by the way, Elijah part 2, Like the prophet of God who's been sent to prepare the people of God to receive their king. Like he's nothing to laugh at. Jesus will say that. Like among those born of women, ain't nobody better than John the Baptist. Look at John the Baptist. Look at John the Baptist. Look at John the Baptist. And John the Baptist says, I can't carry this guy's sandals. Lowest task imaginable. Like the most servant-minded, servant-hearted thing you could possibly do. And John the Baptist says, I don't deserve to carry this man's sandals. I don't deserve to carry Jesus' shoes. And that would make you ask the question, okay, well, who in the world's Jesus then? That's a pretty big deal. If the prophet of God isn't worthy to carry the man's shoes, who is this man? And he is the one, in verse 11, who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Which means, let me boil that down for us a little bit. He's the one the prophet said we're coming. He's the one we've been waiting on. It's about that time because we've been waiting for years and years and years and years for somebody to come to do a work among God's people that will actually change them. Like the baptism that the Lord Jesus is bringing, it ain't John's baptism. It ain't a sign of nothing. Like what he's talking about right here, no, it's going to do something. It's going to functionally change God's people from the inside out. They will receive the Holy Spirit through the person and work of Jesus. This is what has to happen. This is what the prophets have said would happen for years and years and years. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. The Lord says to his people who he's restoring back into a relationship with him. How are you going to do it, Lord? How do your people get a relationship with you? Your rebellious people, like how are they restored to you? Verse 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. I'll remove your heart of stone from your flesh. I'll give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit within you. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And guess who's come to do that? Jesus. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. It's about that time. The king is on the scene. You might want to get it figured out and you might want to get it figured out right now. It's pretty urgent. Verse 12, because the one who's come to redeem his people from their sins has also come to make a very clear distinction. Verse 12, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor. And he will gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. It's about that time. And the question is going to be, not who's your dad, not where'd you descend from, 
not what country you're from, not what your ethnicity is. The question is going to be, has the Lord done a work in your life to cause you to hate your sin and love Jesus? And you might want to figure out if that's true of you right now. And here's how you know. Where's the fruit? What about my, what, what is the Holy Spirit producing in my life? Is there Holy Spirit fruit in my life? Again, not is there fruit that I've willed in my life. Like not, did I pull myself up by my bootstraps and do enough and manage to do enough good deeds and manage to spend enough time reading my Bible or enough time at church or enough time helping old ladies cross the street? I care about all those things. All those things matter. But I'm not worried about what you do. I'm worried about has the Holy Spirit changed your desires and given you a heart that says, I want to be at war with my sin and I want to be in love with Jesus. And I, every day, am doing whatever I can do to make that happen. I'm doing every day. I'm just feeding those good and godly desires more and more and more. So brothers and sisters, is that true of you? I would want to get that figured out. And I would want to get that figured out right now because it's about that time. Why the urgency? What's the rush? Why is today better than tomorrow? First of all, James and the book of James says, look, we don't even know what's coming tomorrow. Don't boast about tomorrow. You don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. You don't, you don't know if you got it tomorrow. I don't know if I got it tomorrow. So don't, don't be worried about tomorrow. But here's the thing I'll tell you about tomorrow. Here's why you can't trust in tomorrow. Here's why you don't want to put this off to tomorrow. Uh, these tomorrows, they're going by really fast. They're going by really fast. Most of y'all know I had a birthday uh, this week. And I'll be honest with you, I hadn't had a lot of time to process it. It was a busy week, and I had a busy weekend with all this wedding stuff. And I was told to be there at times I didn't have to be there, so I was rushing. But I did get just a few minutes on my birthday just to process, you know. Ten years ago, ten years ago today on my birthday, I was playing high school football. And I was starting my senior year of high school, and I didn't know the Lord. And I had not given my heart to, to the Lord. And I just took a step back and said, you know, uh, this is all gone. It's been a crazy ten years. Like, a lot of stuff's gone on, and a lot of stuff's gone on. It's gone on really fast. It's gone on in the blink of an eye. All the tomorrows between 10 years ago and right now have come and gone, and they've come and gone really, really quickly. It's flying, folks. Tomorrows are flying on by. So I wouldn't bank on tomorrow. Life's actually pretty short. Like, we don't want to keep putting things off to tomorrow. But here's what I would really leave you with on John the Baptist. There's a reason that our friend John the Baptist is so concerned about what's imminent. He's concerned about what's imminent because the kingdom of God is at hand. In the person of Jesus, the manifest rule and reign of the king has broken out and it's broken out in our midst. And he demands your allegiance today, like right now. And so if you won't bow the knee to King Jesus today, I just want to know what makes you think you'll bow the knee to King Jesus tomorrow. It's about that time, and it's about that time right now. Pray with me. Oh, Lord, we come a a people who are so aware from this text that we need you to do something to us. We need you to make us a people who are repentant people, a people who are contrite from our hearts, a people who, even though we know the Lord Jesus has come and lived and died and risen, that we might be forgiven, we still need to be a people broken over our sin. So, Lord, break us, even now. Lord, if there are those here who have never trusted you, who've never been granted a repentant heart, Lord, I pray that you would do the work of repentance in them right now to cause them to hate their sin. We can't do it. We can't manufacture it. We can never be good enough. We need you to do it. And so, Lord, would you change us? 
Lord, for those who are your people, who are gathered here right now, Lord, if we have maybe spent too much time not thinking about who we are in our utter sinfulness, Lord, I pray that you would restore uh, in us a contrite heart and a humble spirit. That we be a people who know that in us nothing good dwells. It's only by the power of your spirit at work in us that we can even approach you right now. And so, Lord, we approach you, we do approach you in Jesus' name, uh, clothed in his righteousness, asking you to do a work amongst people who don't know you this morning, that you would grant them repentance. Right now is the time, and so we pray for it right now. And, Lord, we ask that you would continue to do a work in us, causing us to turn from our sin, put it to death, trust and lean on the Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, We're going to have a hymn of response. I'll be in the front row worshiping with you guys. If there's anything you'd